of the last judgment. Uh, this chapter has three paragraphs, and um, we'll, we'll look at each of these in turn. The first of these simply uh, states what the scriptures teach about this matter of the great judgment, the last judgment, and we'll read that together. Before I do, um, Levi, would you run shut the door? I'm assuming that was not left open intentionally. We also have several more copies of the confession with the scripture proofs there on the table, so that's what we're about to read. If anyone doesn't have a copy and you'd like one, they're right there on the table. Let's read together. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's look then at the first of these sets of scripture references, Acts 17 and verse 31. This first statement, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. The, each of those statements taken pretty much directly from this passage in Acts 17. And I want you to consider with me each of those phrases as we read Acts 17, um, looking back to the confession. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world, that there is a specific day appointed by God. It's already determined which day of the week it is, which day of the year it is, which year it is. It's, it's fixed. It has been. And we are steadily, day by day, approaching that day. It's a sobering thing to consider. It, it seems far in the distant future, but the scriptures would not have us think so, and we'll, we'll look at that in the third of these paragraphs when we come to it. But it's important for us not to, not to fall into the thinking of unbelief. Um, the scriptures specifically teach us that because we haven't come to a great day of judgment yet in the history of the world, not as this will be, what do unbelievers and scoffers that deny God say? Well, they just scoff at the very thought well it's always continued as it has and we've never seen the end of history we've never all been called before a god in heaven to answer for our deeds and therefore it's just not going to happen that type of scoffing is the the foolishness of unbelief god would have us uh, take him at his word and believe him it's one aspect of our faith that he gives us he's appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, that this judgment will be conducted in perfect righteousness. That's something that we cannot attain or, or witness or experience here on earth. Even the very best efforts in this life uh, by those who are appointed by God even to render judgment, to make determination, to seek and pursue after justice, in the affairs of men, uh, none of those can touch this 
in terms of the righteousness of the judgment because God knows everything. God knows not only what has been done, but every secret thing that's been done, all the thoughts of our hearts, uh, all the motives of what we're done. All of this is brought into this great judgment when he will judge the entire world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And that last, that last phrase we'll see expanded upon in our confession. So let's turn then to Acts 17. Hopefully you've found that by now. We'll read verse 31, but back up um, in this. This is the Apostle Paul with his opportunity to... He's been sharing the gospel. He has been sharing about Jesus Christ and his resurrection in, uh, in verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, these are strange-sounding things to these men in Athens. And so they give him the occasion to come to the Areopagus, and they ask him to explain himself. What is this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. In verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they just had this idle intellectual curiosity. Uh, this wasn't an earnest pursuit of truth. I, I don't know that these men really even had that thought any longer in terms of there being objective truth that they should be holding fast to. Rather, they're just enjoying all the variety, hearing all the things, all the different philosophies, and discussing them as the judge of those things. So in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so here, here Paul is, is quickly coming to, a, to an observation that exposes... Um, the, the need and the weakness and the ignorance of these people. They, they come as the judges of, of every new philosophy. They're going to um, hear from Paul, again, sitting basically as the judges to hear what he has to say. And Paul points them to just so, so quickly and directly that uh, first of all, they, they clearly have a, a consciousness that they should be worshiping um, a divine God because their, their city's full of idols and temples and altars. And then also there is this particular altar dedicated to the unknown God. It's almost like an insurance policy if we've missed one. I mean, it's a city full of, of altars dedicated to all the gods they've known, but Here's an altar to the unknown God, um, an admission, if you will, that they, they don't know everything. And here Paul is, is urging and pressing upon them 
that there is a God they don't know, and he does know him and has come to make him known. Uh, he has been sent. And so in, in verse, um, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so here in his evangelism and his sharing the gospel, with those who didn't have the background of the, the attendees there at the synagogues, the places that he typically would be sharing the message of Jesus Christ as the Messiah who had come. He, he shares with them God's creative work, that he is the God of, that has created all men. And he, he deals with these major issues of the resurrection of Jesus, of this uh, sending an appointment of a man, Jesus Christ, and that he is coming to judge the world. Now, again, as we think about this matter of the last judgment, what place should that have in our thinking? Well, we see Paul here in, in the very, if he only has possibly one opportunity to speak to these people who have some curiosity about what he's been teaching about Jesus Christ, what what does he include in such a short address? He, he presses them to consider well that this God who is uh, the one who has created all things, he, he, was, he, he made the world and everything in it, he is coming. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He uses this to uh, call them to a reckoning with their sin and to set the stage for sharing the gospel. Well, why do we need a gospel? Why, why do we need a Savior? What is the problem with the situation we're in? Well, Paul puts it in stark terms here by pointing to the judgment on the last day. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. So back to the confession we read, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Again, taken almost word for word from Acts 17. 
to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. What is this matter of, of God appointing a man to judge the world? Or that he will uh, judge the world by Jesus Christ? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 27, we have references to this, of course, the secret counsels of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unknown to us apart from God's revelation. In verse 19 of John 5, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority... No, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this matter of the Father committing the judgment to the Son, he has given all judgment to the Son, it, it is connected to the role of the Son in revealing the Father. He is the Word that was sent. He's the Word that reveals the Father. We read that in John 1 and also in Hebrews 1. The Father sent His Son. And to those who would reject the Son, uh, the Father has uh, already determined. He has given the judgment on the last day to the Son so that who... Who will they see when they stand before God to answer for their sin, to answer for their wickedness, especially to answer for their rejection of the offer of life and salvation of the Father whom uh, he has sent and accomplished in his Son? They will be looking upon the Son that they rejected. They'll be looking upon the Son of Man. It is even given as the reason in in verse um, let's see because he is the son of man in verse 27 he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man in other words as as the son of god as the divine second person of the trinity who is eternal, who is of like nature with the Father, 
um, he, he shares in all that the Godhead is. But as the Son of Man, particularly, as this child of the woman, uh, as the Messiah, the Son of David who was sent, those who reject him will have to answer directly to him and receive the judgment of God from him on that last day. Back to the confession. In which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth. This matter to the reference to the apostate angels in 1 Corinthians 6, Jude verse 6, and 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at each of these. But notice that even though the angels rebelled, and even though the, the serpent who came, the, the evil one who came and took the form of the serpent, even there in the Garden of Eden, who was instrumental in the fall of man, even though that happened so long ago, they have nonetheless not stood before God to receive the judgment for their rebellion. Uh, this is the significance of this last Day. God has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. And so there are many things that appear uh, to be wrongs that haven't been set right. And that's, that's not wrong. I mean, there, there are truly wrong things that are done. There is um, a deficiency in the justice that is experienced in this life. And that will all be set right. Those who have done good will be finally given the recognition, the reward for that, even though often they didn't in this life. Those who had done evil, even though often they appeared to get away with that, and it went unanswered, yet they will on this day all be called to stand before God, and every wrong thing will be judged, and every good thing that has ever been done will be noted and God will uh, deal graciously with his children and give them the fullness of the reward of all that he had promised to give them. And so this matter of the angels who had fallen, the apostate angels, that they ha are still waiting for the sentence of judgment to be pronounced upon them. If you'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a remarkable passage. Paul is um, reproaching the Corinthians, pleading with them, correcting them. And this particular issue that he is addressing now is that they were having these grievances and disputes one with another, and instead of resolving that in a way that would honor the Lord within the church by going to the elders that had been appointed to deal with such things, they were what? They were going to the civil courts, pressing their claims there. And Paul's uh, correction is that this is so dishonoring to the Lord Jesus for his own children who profess his name to as much as say to the world, well, we, we, we're still having all of the same problems you have. Further, we don't have any of the mechanism uh, to find justice or redress. We have nothing that would help 
uh, in preventing these things from happening or at least in settling these things, in determining who has done what and how to have um, reconciliation or um, righteousness or justice determined, uh, we'll have to come to you to receive that. What a dishonor to the name of the Lord. He's the one from whom justice comes forth, and yet his children are telling the world, well, we're going to come to you. You must be the only place that we could find any type of a just determination for our disputes. What a dishonor to the world. And so that was the situation. And Paul, Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that no one among you, wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived and then he he urges them to take heed, especially looking at these who were committing the wrongs against their fellow brothers in Christ, what, what are you doing? Don't you know that those who, who give themselves to wickedness, such as you're committing, they don't have a share in the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he goes on to address the, the grievances themselves, but before he does that, he addresses this matter of how they were resolving or addressing those grievances. Here, here, notice the contrast in verse 1. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now notice the descriptions that are used to identify these groups. The unrighteous are those who are outside of Christ. They're still in their sins. Uh, how are God's people to be... Um, known as the saints. That shouldn't be uh, a contradiction of terms. The holy ones. These are the ones being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. These are the ones that Jesus has put his hand upon. And consider now, in, in the pursuit of justice or what, what is right, you're going to the unrighteous to hear that. You're not going to those that God's Spirit is working within to, to make holy and sanctified. You're not going to the saints. Again, what a dishonor. But in the midst of this, uh, we learn something that I don't know that we would know, directly at least, but Paul makes plain in, in his case for how, how wrong this is. In verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, there is certainly a sense where we'll be standing there before God, on that last day, we read that in many other passages. We will, we will be pleading the righteousness of Jesus Christ before that judgment seat. 
we won't be able to stand there and, and plead our own righteousness because our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. And we have nothing that is even in any way good that he hasn't accomplished within us. But our righteousness must be the perfect righteousness of Jesus for it to stand up to the scrutiny of God's perfect holiness. And so we will be ourselves standing before that throne and, and pleading our case, and we will hear the final declaration of what heaven had already declared when we believed in Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we'll hear. Uh, it's not in doubt. If we have believed in Jesus, God has spoken that sentence already. He's already given us that outcome. That's what justification is. It is hearing in advance the sentence of the last day pronounced in our favor because of the work of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. So we don't, it is for that reason we don't dread that day or look upon it with uncertainty, but we even, we even anticipate it. We look forward to it. We are praying, as we read at the end of the Scriptures in the last chapter of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We look forward to seeing the one who, he is the judge, but who is he to us? He's our Savior. He is the friend of sinners. He is uh, the lover of our souls, as we sing. He is our Lord and the one we love above all others, the one who loved us even to the end and gave himself for us. So we don't dread that day, but we will uh, hear and all will hear God's pronouncement of, of uh, judgment in our favor as Jesus Christ will have paid the full payment that our sins would otherwise deserve. And that will be demonstrated for the world to see. But in addition to receiving the judgment and hearing the pronouncement and standing before the bar of judgment, as Scripture does teach us, and we'll look at these other passages, we also are privileged then. The Lord Jesus welcomes us to himself. And as we read in Ephesians, in principle, in truth and fact, we're already seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Where do we belong as the children of God? We belong right beside the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace and mercy, not because of our deserving, but he welcomes us. He says, you, you, everything that I have is yours. And you belong with me. Come sit with me. And we will participate with him then in pronouncing the judgment that he will render to the angels and to the rest who will receive the judgment that their sins deserve. And, and we will only be singing the praises of the mercy of God because we will know that we deserve at that point to be on the other side of that bench with those who had refused the offer of salvation and rebelled against the gospel and continuing a life of disobedience. We could have done that. We would have done that 
apart from God's sovereign grace, when he called us to himself and gave us a new heart, not the heart that we had, but a new heart to know and love him. And it will be all of his grace on that day. But marvel of marvels, not only will we be forgiven, but we will be welcome to join with our Lord and Savior. We will be so close to him. We are in Christ, as Paul likes to say. And that relationship is so close uh, that nothing will separate us from him. He will welcome us to sit with him, to join with him in everything, beginning right there with his pronouncement of judgment upon the angels who rebelled against God. That's what we read there in verses 2 and 3. And so, if we'll turn to Jude, we have another reference to this matter of the angels being judged on that day. We, we don't see our involvement in that in this particular passage, but this matter of, of their, their judgment having a stay put on it, that they are still free to uh they're, they're not chained in in the sense of cast in the the abyss as they will be on that day uh, they are allowed a limited range of activity even in this world and only because their actions uh, serve to accomplish god's great purposes in ways that no one can understand or predict. Even the very enemies of God um, find that they have just been a tool in his hand. Uh, that's what we read in the scriptures again and again. Think of Pharaoh. Um, Romans 9 uh, illustrates that and calls us to consider that. Or in the Old Testament prophets, um, Assyria is what? It's the rod in God's hand that he uses. Now, now, they will answer for their sins. He will deal with them in turn. But God is such a great God that he uses even those who are seeking to oppose him. He uses that for his own purpose in a marvelous display of wisdom. As the Psalms uh, say, even the wrath of men will praise him with the remnant of wrath he girds himself. So here in Jude, we have this teaching reinforced and we're reminded that the angels have not yet heard the final sentence they, they are restrained they are awaiting sentencing but uh, they have not yet heard that sentence they will receive that on the day of judgment in Jude verse 5 now I want to remind you although once you fully knew it that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, <clears throat> it's easy to read over that, but I'll just call your attention to what we just read in verse 5. Who was it that was loving the children of Abraham? And who was it that was accomplishing salvation, even in the Old Testament, in delivering Israel from Egypt? Jude has no hesitation in saying it was Jesus, the Jesus that is preached in the gospel of the New Testament is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, but is the Son of God who is eternal and who was alive and working 
for the salvation of God's people all through the Old Testament. Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you, you remember, it's been some weeks ago now, we, we made mention of, of how foolish it is that people who have never gone through the end of life and, and looked beyond and seen what awaits us would yet argue with or disbelieve the God who knows all things and tells us so in his word. But there, uh, not, to, not to dispute that, but there are clear instances where God has shown people evidence of how he views sin and of the end of wickedness. And the scriptures make mention of two in particular. Peter um, looks at the flood in Noah's day and points to that as an, an illustration that is intended to be persuasive and convicting to the end of time that God judged the world because of sin and brought about a, a, an incredible destruction that is difficult for us to even comprehend. But we, we, can't, we can't plead ignorance if we stand before the Lord on the great day. Well, we had no idea that judgment would be the end for sin and wickedness. And here we have uh, Jude using the example the other that is mentioned frequently in the scriptures of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you remember from the book of Genesis what happened there. God spoke to Abraham and Abraham pleads with God but the, the result ended up being Lot was delivered but God nonetheless rained fire and brimstone down on these cities of the plain. Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desire as Jude says notice the end of verse 7 they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire just this past week I was uh, reading some uh, materials archaeologists going through digs in some cities north of the north of the Dead Sea and they were explaining the, uh, the fact that there is a layer of glass in the, in the uh, as they uncover layer after layer, there, there is a layer of glass where the sand of the desert was superheated and there is ash and so forth indicative of some tremendous event. Uh, consistent date-wise with, with what uh, the scriptures record God did with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the, basically no man-made 
source of heat would be sufficient to accomplish what they were observing. And their supposition was a, a giant comet or meteor that would that entered the atmosphere and had to, uh, they said, explode to, to accomplish what they were looking at. This meteor had to explode um, about 100 kilometers uh, above the surface of the Earth, and that would uh, create the incineration that they observed. And so, nonetheless, here we are, how many thousands of years later, and you can see the evidence of that great destruction that God poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jude writes in terms of this great day that the, the angels who did not stay within their own position but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then lastly, Second Peter chapter 2. Here is Peter's uh, teaching on the great judgment and why we need to flee from the wrath to come and seek the Lord Jesus Christ, seek the Lord while he may be found and find our life and forgiveness and salvation in him. And in verse 4 of Second Peter 2, uh, well, let's just read. Uh, he, he's speak, speaking in verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In other words, lightning hasn't struck them down from heaven, but God has noted their actions. In fact, he has already released and set in motion a condemnation and a destruction that is hunting them down. It is not idle. It is not asleep. It is coming for them. And they have no idea of, of any fear of God. But look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punish the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And so God has not left himself without a witness in something so serious 
He has spoken of it in his word, and in the history of mankind, he has performed these great acts of judgment, which Scripture tells us are intended to serve as a warning uh, to all who would come afterward of the power of God and his commitment to bringing judgment upon wickedness. And so in, in uh, our confession, we see again this teaching that there is a great day of judgment, that the angels are being held, They're, they have not heard their sentence, but they are being uh, held in anticipation of a great day of judgment. But not only will the apostate angels be judged, but likewise all persons, back to the confession, that have lived upon earth, shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I don't know that we have time to look at each of these, but let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And here is, here is another reference. We, we've already looked at Paul and how... He, he urged them to consider that they would be joining Jesus Christ on his judgment seat and pronouncing judgment. Well, here in the same author to the same church, we see this teaching that we also must first appear ourselves before the judgment seat. In um, uh, let's just begin in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So each of us will appear before that judgment seat. And not only do we, do we find the Scriptures teaching that the Father pardons us solely for the righteousness of Jesus, and he accepts as the payment of our sins that we must freely confess we've committed, the only payment that is sufficient in our stead that we might escape the judgment to come is the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his suffering. But we will also have the fruit of our sanctification presented before that judgment seat. And that's what's being referred to at the end of verse 10, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And again, this, this is not teaching us that we will enter heaven because of our own righteousness. That's the work of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, when God's children have, have suffered and labored and even been persecuted, in our efforts at following the leading of the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying work in our lives. And as we bear the fruit that is in keeping with being joined to the vine, Jesus Christ, that will be brought forth and presented for the whole world to see 
and we will receive the smile of our Father and a gracious blessing rewarding us graciously for what we have done in our sanctification. Now again, if that's all we had to present was our sanctification and our obedience, uh, our efforts toward that as his children, that's imperfect. It is flawed. It is inconsistent. It is partial. And it would not be sufficient. But we, having been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and made perfect in the sight of God our Father, uh, can present our efforts of obedience and have those covered in the blood of Jesus and made acceptable to our Father so that we will receive his smile when we stand before him. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy prepared by your master. Well, well, we'll pick up with Ecclesiastes chapter 12 because we are close to our time and we want to close with a word of prayer before then. Father, we do thank you for revealing these truths to us. We confess our own hearts are dull. And even though you have done tremendous things in the history of the world to demonstrate your hatred of sin and the terrible consequences of judgment that follow it, we think of the, the great flood of Noah's day and the pouring out of fire and brimstone upon the cities of the plain. Lord, we have hardened our heart to such warnings. Uh, these are not uh, relayed faithfully generation to generation as the sobering warnings that they are. And we have done what we could as, as mankind to forget of these things. And yet your witness stands even today. And we thank you that you have given us a new heart, uh, a heart to recognize the evil of our sin, to hate and forsake it, to flee in repentance from our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. We confess that we must have the blood of Jesus Christ as the payment of our sins. And we must have his perfect life of righteousness as that which clothes us and what we will present to you, O Father, as we do today to be justified in your sight. So it will be on the great day of judgment. And we thank you for your gracious work within us that you are leading us in the paths of obedience. You are helping us to bear fruit. We pray that that would be more consistent and faithful. We would grow in holiness to be holy as you are holy, as our Father in heaven. And we know that on that great day, we will have the praise of Jesus Christ upon our lips, because apart from his work, we would have perished. And if it were our own righteousness that we must claim, then we would sure, surely perish on that day. We thank you that because of his gracious work to cover and cleanse and even pay for the imperfections of our efforts at obedience, we thank you that it is made acceptable in your sight and that you do receive it, knowing our hearts, Lord, knowing our desire to please you. You are graciously pleased to accept it for the sake of Jesus and even to bless us for it. 
We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that our justification is assured the moment we believe in Jesus. We thank you that we are not kept in suspense until the great day of judgment, but we can anticipate it with joy and eagerness, knowing what we will hear as we have believed in your Son. And we pray that you would give us that joy and confidence to come through the new and living way that you have opened into heaven itself to approach you with joy and confidence, knowing that we are forgiven and that we would worship you in close communion and fellowship restored through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray that you would bless our time of worship and bless those who are able to come with safety and uh, getting off of driveways and wherever they are coming. Lord, we pray for your protecting hand upon your children. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.